1: Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning.
0: Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. What follows is going to be a talk I gave at the Sound Education Conference at prestigious Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, This is a convention dedicated to educational podcasts, and I was... Very flattered to be invited to come, not least of which because I got to hang out with so many of my uh, colleagues from the podcasting world, which was really cool. But I also got to meet a ton of great listeners, so thanks to everybody who came up and said hi at the conference. It was really g- cool to meet everybody. Um, there was a ton going on at that conference, and so happily, uh, a lot of us were recording our own stuff, and the conference organizers recorded as much of it as they could, Um, This one I recorded, and uh, I'm going to be posting it now. The other panels the conference organizers posted, so I will post them as episodes as this becomes available. Now, one thing to note is that uh, because this was a live event, there's a certain visual aspect that is lacking from our normal episodes. This is particularly the case with this episode, which was actually a you know, PowerPoint presentation that I spent two months working on, so if you're listening while you're driving, cool, um, maybe pause and put on something else, uh, or whatever, um, if you're, you're not driving, I don't usually do this, for this episode, for just this episode, and and maybe the, the other two episodes, but for this episode, it may be worth going to the website and checking out the extra materials that I have there, which essentially are my uh, slideshow. So, uh, that's cool for you guys. And then, uh, when I post the other episodes, um, by the time those are, uh, edited by the conference organizers, they were actually videotaped too. So, um, hopefully we'll have, you know, actual links to videos on, on YouTube or whatever when that happens. Uh, so for now, um, enjoy this. Uh, it was a lot of fun uh, seeing everybody and, uh, and doing this, this talk, so hopefully we'll d- be doing it again next year. Well, different topic. But anyway. Oh, and uh, just in case you are listening while you're driving, or whatever, uh, the title of this presentation was Catastrophic Disruption, How the Printing Press Ignited Anti-Witch Hysteria in Early Modern Europe. Uh, that's the rest of it you can probably get from Context Clues. Enjoy. All right. Uh, Are you set? Uh, Should I wait? Okay. Thank you. So, by the way, I have a store now. (laughs) Or I will shortly. Agora is setting up a store. So, of course, we have green trebuchet t-shirts for sale if anyone's interested. But yeah, and I also have a table over in the the registration hall um, with these shirts for sale. And I I can only afford 10 of them, so anyone who wants to help me break even, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we... Good, okay, cool. So thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm going to sit down because otherwise I would be in the way of these slides. And I worked very hard on these slides, so... um, Oh, I can't see my notes like this. Okay, this is going to be fun. (laughs) Um, So, um, my talk today is going to be, obviously, about how the printing press relates to the witch hunts in the early modern period, and um, I don't have time for my usual level of background, (laughs) uh, given that I want to try and keep this to 20 minutes, and I'm setting my stopwatch now. Um, But... I do need to give some background. So uh, the witch hunts in general were a phenomenon in early modern Europe, 1429 to 1750. Um, The interesting thing is that witch hunts in medieval Europe really weren't a thing. Uh, At the Council of Paderborn in 780, the papacy banned hunting witches. Uh, because hunting witches would require you to acknowledge that witches exist and have actual real-world power, and for a variety of complex theological reasons, that was not true according to uh, the church at the time. Um, Things slowly evolved over the course of the Middle Ages. Again, don't have time to get into all of it, but the papacy reversed this position at the Council of Basel in 1429, and immediately witch hunts broke out. But those early witch hunts from 1429 to 1580 were not very big. They were very concentrated geographically around the Swiss Alps, and not too many people were killed at any one time. It really wasn't until 1580 when things kind of went nuts, and they went nuts in Germany, um, and uh, the Pyrenees region of Spain and France, and they, you know, thousands and thousands of people would be killed uh, at a time. Uh, really, you know, hundreds of people at a at a given time, thousands of people over a year, things like that. Um, and uh, it was originally concentrated in Central Europe. After 1630, things calmed down in Central Europe, but then spread out into areas like Scandinavia and England and the New World. Uh, you may have heard of the Danvers witch hunts in, in Mas- I'm sorry, Salem. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, these, these trials tended to follow a very grimly familiar narrative when they happened. There would be a wild accusation by, uh, of a usually a poor woman by uh, a different poor person. Um, these were not top-down affairs. They were generally bottom-up affairs. Some commoner would accuse some other commoner. Uh, that person, the person who was accused would get tortured and under torture would accuse other people because uh, in order for it to be a demonological conspiracy, there had to be a conspiracy. And so then when those other people were named, they would then be tortured and it would turn into a fairly uh, grim spiral until eventually someone, usually someone from the outside would get involved and shut it down. Given that narrative, um, I think it is pretty clear that this tended to happen in a uh, context of extreme political instability, such as, say, the wars of the Protestant Reformation, for example. Just pulling that out of a hat. Um, but political instability was a key feature, um, and, uh, you know, so, so that's just a note. Why? We don't have time to go into it, but one of the key things is the printing press. <laughs> um, the printing press was invented in 1436, 1439 depending on who you ask and which legal records you choose to believe. The key thing is that it was 10 years after the first witch hunts. So I'm not saying that this is the silver bullet that explains all of witch hunting. Uh, it is just one thing. Um, so to understand the impact of the witch hunts, you of need to under, understand the context, the communications context that the printing press moved into. There were some key markets um, in terms of literate people. Uh, About 30% of the population in cities tended to be literate. Uh, It was like 5% overall, but that doesn't really quite tell the whole story. Obviously the church was the main focus of uh, of literate people. Uh, There were also universities, increasingly important, full of students who were hoping to work either in the church or in the government bureaucracies. Uh, Sorry if I'm speaking really fast, but time. Um, (laughs) The thing is that all of these, even though it was only 5% of the population, there were also uh, traders and and nobles, but the thing is that even though it was only 5% of the population that could actually read, the entire population of Europe was tied into these networks of public reading. As a, for example, a very important for example, in rural villages, the most, you know, half to 95% of the population lived on in, depending on the time period. Everyone would get together once a week and go to a place called church and the one literate person in the village would read to them, sometimes from the Bible but also news, communications from the Lord, just general information that everyone needed to know. By the way, it's springtime and maybe planting crops would be a good idea, that kind of thing. So everybody was involved in some way. If you couldn't read yourself, you could find someone who would read for you. And this is sort of how society worked. It, uh, and you know I could go into another 20 minutes of why Latin was, for economic reasons, the most important reading language when you had markets like this. But anyway, for people in cities, for people in trades, um, you t- tended to need to know things about places that were far away. For example, what's the current you know, tariff policy of Venice, and I'm in Flanders, something like that. And so there would be these correspondence networks that would take advantage of these public reading systems, but a letter would be sent, someone would receive it, copy it, and send it on, and then read it to their friends. Um, and this, uh, there were formal and informal versions of these, and so there were communication networks across Europe that involved writing and reading, that predated the printing press. They followed the trade routes, which is important. Um, It's important because the printing press, once invented, followed these markets and followed these trade routes. So this is a a really great graphic showing the rapid rise of the printing press and why I can say that it was so important in the spread of witch hunting, because you'll notice that 1500 is earlier than 1580, which is when the peak period really kicked into high gear. so that said, I'm operating without notes, so I'm not sure what my next slide is. OK, so, <laughs> so the, the early market, early products that were produced by the, the printing press in this, this trade context, every, a lot of historians and people have focused on books. But that only tells really half the story, and to a certain extent, the less important part of it. Uh, books are still extremely expensive and very, very risky. Um, it seems like a truism, what I'm about to say, but it's important. The more pages you have, the more expensive it is to produce a written product. But it goes way beyond like paper and ink. You're talking about having to ri- ha- hire someone to write the extra copy. You have to edit it. Often you have to translate it, and you have to typeset it and do the entire you know, printing-publishing process. It's extraordinarily capital-intensive, and then at the end of it you're left with a product that, in an in inventory term, is extraordinarily blocky. You can't sell half a book, you can try, but you generally, people don't want that. And so you're left, you know, you have to sell them in these quanta, and that creates extra risk. By contrast, pamphlets, broadsheets, news sheets that had a million names, they're trash literature (laughs) to a certain extent, but they're a lot more liquid, and they're a lot easier to deal with. Uh, Obviously, you're only typesetting and editing one or two pages. Um, you can follow, send them out along these existing trade routes. Um, and there's obviously there's a lot less capital involved. The, there are downsides to this industry. <laughs> uh, there was no market framework and there was an extremely low barriers to entry because as much as we laud the printing press as a technology, it's really not exotic. Uh, if you look at the component parts, die cutting required some fancy metallurgy But that was really the extent of it. Everything else is basically just a bunch of things strapped to a wine press. Um, Most people who had money in the city could set up a printing press fairly easily. The censorship regime as it existed was designed for handwritten books. And it took a really long time to censor something. We, We have this image of the Middle Ages that's You know, we think of the piles of burning books and everything like that. It's not really accurate. Often what would happen is that by the time people found out that you were saying something that they didn't want you to say, made a decision that they wanted to censor you, went through the process of having trials and stuff, and then went through the process of getting word back to the the local authorities to to stop you from doing your thing, you were usually dead Many and many of the people who were censored in the Middle Ages were dead decades before word came back that their works needed to be censored. So this actually was pretty good for the printers, because you know they could just say whatever. As long as they didn't annoy anyone locally, um, <laughs> As long as they didn't annoy anyone locally, they were usually OK. The flip side of this, though, is that there is also no copyright protections. Um, you usually could use your influence within your local city to keep people from copying you. But outside of that, it was no holds barred. And so if you're sending out your pamphlets, or even your books, along trade route networks, by the time it gets to the next city, you have to sell everything immediately or you're, you know, at your next last week's news. Um, it would The printers would take it in the next city over. They'd say, this is selling well. Let's copy it. And by the next week, there were you know, three other publishers who were running off copies of your pamphlet or whatever. So the unintended consequences that this drove should be familiar to everybody, right? Um, they really needed long short-term po- profits. So they needed an emotional response from viewers. Um, they needed catchy graphics. They needed to, to push people to grab to, to want to read their thing. It was clickbait. Uh, these, these forces worked regardless of whether or not the thing that you were putting out there was considered reasonable or true according to the standards of the time. And so there, and with the no restrictions on content, people could say sort of anything. Once you've put that idea out there that's really catchy and is gonna sell well, it gets to the next city over, all of a sudden five other printers are printing it and they're sending it out to other cities too. So your one idea that was terrible but got people to read it, is now spread out all along the trade routes of Europe. It was in some ways the democratization of misinformation. My wife came up with that term and I'm very, very proud of her. It was a great term. Anyway, (laughs) so how do we know this happened? There's a little thing called the Protestant Reformation that may be important to my show. So this guy named Lucas Cronach was a very interesting character. He was the court painter of the Duke of Wittenberg, uh, all around Renaissance man, and by the way, made a fortune, absolute fortune in printing. Uh, And one of his main cash crowds was his buddy Martin Luther. Uh, He was like sort of the number three person in the Protestant uh, inner circle. Um, And so uh, over on this side, you can see the lovely print uh, of Martin Luther from the early days back when he was still monking it up, um, which, which Lucas Cronach put together. But these other two are actually more interesting in terms of this pamphlet discussion. On this side, you can see uh, the apostles, um, you know, washing the feet of a homeless person and you know, they're, they're being super humble and kissing the feet and they're living in poverty. Uh, and then in the middle here, you have the Pope who is supposed to be the heir of the apostles, but you'll notice that he is living in extraordinary luxury, having his feet kissed by all these rich people who are bringing him all these fantastic gifts. That Pope might not be doing what he's supposed to be doing as the heir of the apostles is the clear message that you're supposed to be getting from this. So this kind of uh, product was very effective in spreading the message of Protestantism. Uh, And this is one of the more mild ones. A lot of them were very inflammatory. And of course, this spreads across the trade routes of Europe, which leads to a certain recognizable distribution of Protestantism across Europe. uh, Sort of as, this is a nice picture of Europe sort of on the edge of things going completely nuts uh, with these pockets of Calvinism everywhere and then, you know, Lutheranism as well in the East. But uh, the key thing here is that it was following the trade routes. There's been a lot of argumentation about what the specific mechanism is, a lot of people are down with the printing press as one of the key things at this point. So obviously this has some ramifications for witch hunting. Uh, There were a number of key books that were put out uh, starting almost immediately as soon as witch hunting happened, uh, was permitted by the church. Um, They sold extraordinarily well, um, but I think the key thing to say about the books is that they influenced the printers. Um, common people weren't reading, it's too expensive, not enough of them were literate. But the literate classes were reading this. And then they turned around and made more content. Fictional accounts like Faust, Faust was turned into several plays, which are really nice because people who aren't literate can enjoy plays. Uh, but then, of course, there's the issue of pamphlets. The pamphlets about witch hunting, much like the narrative of the hunts, tends to be very familiar and replicate itself repeatedly, no matter which instance you look at. Of course, there's variation, but there's usually this grain of truth, uh, a witch hunt happened in this other city. And they'll say, but they'll present the, the materials from the hunt as gospel fact. So, you know, Whereas now in a trial you might say, so-and-so was accused of doing this thing, they would say, so-and-so did this thing. So-and-so summoned a demon and killed a bunch of children and caused hail. Um, And then often when we look back at these pamphlets, there's stuff in them that wasn't even vaguely true, like stuff that wasn't even involved in the original trial. Complete lies all of which would build up these demonological witches as an opposing force, and it would of course be concluded by a call to action. In our city, we need to remain vigilant against these witches who are coming to kill Christians. Uh, All of this is sort of point by point, uh, stuff that we would recognize from the 20th century from like the Nazis and the communists as propaganda. I think it's worth saying that I don't think there was some continent-spanning conspiracy of printers out to get poor women. Um, uh, That said, some of them may have been convinced by the books, all of them wanted to make money. (laughs) Uh, There was money in this business. A lot of people made a ton of money printing these pamphlets and they sold like hotcakes. Uh, And in doing so it created the paranoid conditions needed for a mass panic. This pamphlet is a really interesting example because uh, this was a, a pamphlet that was printed in Nuremberg. On this side, you can see demons that have been summoned by witches who are killing a bunch of people. And on this side, you can see the noble burgers of of the city in which the witch trial happened who are torturing a bunch of witches and plunging them into a river and stuff. Uh, I'm hoping you can sort of see that. The quality's not the best, sorry. The interesting thing about this is that this was printed in Nuremberg. Nuremberg was surrounded by a bunch of the worst witch-hunting cities in Germany. Uh, It was like one city over from Trier where thousands of people were being killed at the same time. The city council of Nuremberg looked at this and said, all pamphlets on witch hunting are banned. All copies of this pamphlet were collected and burned and there were no witch hunts in Nuremberg. After 1630, the hunts started to decline in Central Europe. Uh, there are a number of factors that I don't really have time to go into, but again, I want to try and touch on the things that related to the printing press. Uh, centralization was a huge factor, and the different parts of Europe um, went through this process in different ways. Uh, on the Protestant side, the the state system was firming up really quickly, and part of the whole Protestant uh, program was education. And one of the things that came out of that was that people learned that these traditional formerly pagan practices that they had been participating in since the fall of the Roman Empire. Turns out that they're not actually very Christian and you probably shouldn't be doing that (laughs) anymore and it could get you accused of being a witch. Uh, That educational program was facilitated heavily by the availability of educational materials from printing presses. Um, The Catholic side, they also went through a centralization which was also facilitated by printing presses. Part of that whole process involved the papacy getting a much firmer hand on the different institutions that they had already created throughout Europe. In 1635, the new head of the papal inquisition in Rome said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit because I don't have my notes, uh, but said that we have reviewed all the instances of witch hunting conducted by the inquisition and not one of them was conducted legally. We have different standards of what constitutes justice nowadays from what they had in the Middle Ages, but what that quote is saying is that even according to the standards of justice in the Middle Ages, none of the trials had been conducted according to those standards. So as the church got a better handle on its institutions, as the state systems of Europe got a better handle on their institutions, there was much less space for these kinds of spirals of uh, torture and paranoia that had created the, the witch hunts. Market factors are also very important. Uh, one big one is just market saturation. You keep telling the same story over and over again, eventually people get tired of it. But um, Another big port point is the maturation of the media environment. Uh, eventually, it became important for printers to have a relationship with their customers. Uh, the classic business model that this was represented by is the, a thing called a newspaper, uh, where you would send money On a regular basis to a printer and they would send you media on a regular basis Uh, and this built up a relationship and part of a relationship like that usually requires some level of me not thinking that you're lying to me consistently or if you are lying to me consistently that it be an entertaining fictional lie that i understand is fiction Um, of course this didn't you know newspapers still Tell thing, say things that are wrong and you know exaggerate things, but compared to the situation with pure pamphlets, where I have no relationship with you, I'm just showing up at a market with a stack of papers and saying, "Give me a pittance, give me a straw penny each, and this is yours," and then you never see me again. There's a lot more of a relationship there. Um, so th- those market factors are, are probably as important as the centralization thing in there. Oh, and then also, I keep forgetting to add this into the slide, the scientific revolution happened, and that gradually convinced the printers themselves that witches weren't a thing, so that's also uh, important. So, just in summary, I think the story that we've told um, has a lot of things that are important for us to talk about at a podcast convention, (laughs) Um, where... uh, There's definitely a sense that the the Whiggish idea of good ideas driving out bad happened, but it took two or three centuries and in the process 60,000 people were killed and many times more than that were tortured and permanently injured. Um, That said, it's not 1580 anymore (laughs) and there's reasons, there's things we can do and there's reasons for hope. as podcasters and uh, as people we can try and favor good ideas over bad ones. Um, and part of this is that we've learned that censorship isn't piling books in the middle of the street and setting them on fire. There, there's more gradations to that. One of the things that the traditional media has done is that they won't report murders in extraordinarily graphic detail anymore because they realize that that leads to copycat crimes. So. There's things that we can do if we're thoughtful about the information that we present to help control bad ideas and present them in the proper context that they don't spread. Um, Using the market to fight our battles is also important. And I think that this has already happened. The internet media environment has already consolidated to a large extent. Most of us get our content via social media platforms and not just looking at random websites. Um, As much as it seems chaotic right now, that creates a pressure point. Uh, If they manipulate their algorithms for good rather than for evil, (laughs) then that makes the media that we consume more curated and more full of good and less full of bad ones. Public policy has a role. Uh, We as voters have the ability to use our politicians to exert pressure on the social media platforms Even if we don't come out and straight up censor them, uh, having Mark Zuckerberg dragged in front of Congress repeatedly to explain himself is going to change things. (laughs) And finally, just avoiding self-fulfilling prophecy is really important. We have a tendency to emphasize bad things. Humans are hardwired for it. If we get completely wrapped up in the grim, dark vision of the future, that's a really good way to make it happen. there's nothing that creates paranoia more than being paranoid. <laughs> so, um, And just uh, no matter how bad you think things get, probably not killing anyone is just a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. So thanks, everybody, for coming and listening, and I'm here for questions. <laughs> Does anybody have any?
2: Is that 60,000? That's just... With witches, or is that included, so all the wars of the Reformation on top of that? Yes,
0: Uh, I had it at one point, and off the top of my head, I think if you add in the wars of the Reformation and everything, it's something like 460,000 people.
2: You talked about the fact that the the platforms today, in effect, are analogous to our newspapers, Mm -hmm. And, and though... This kind of theorem, as you know, the internet has been disruptive in the body, politics, and society is similar to, to printing. It's kind of out there, and so I was really interested to know about um, the, the markers. You know, that the time that we're going through is just kind of turbulence. But one thing you missed out are those kind of those platforms, those bits of technology which aren't fundamentally platforms in the traditional kind of newspaper sense. So, like WhatsApp, is the is the work, is the pamphlet, isn't it? Which the, the recipient has, not that you have no relationship to where you get the WhatsApp from, mm-hmm. but it is that pamphlet which you put in the, in the town, yeah. in the town square, isn't it? Yeah, it says those people, those Rohingya over Burma right. are bad. Right, let let let's go get them and stuff. Yeah, so when there are still way avenues in this new technology which are unregulated, you know.
0: Yeah, when when we're getting our information. When the analogy is to just the market square, and there's a bunch of people hawking stacks of sheets of paper, and you don't have any relationship with them, then yes. Um, but I think uh, we're moving away from that kind of environment. It's, it's just, you know, I, I think that there's not a lot of long-term future for that, because people aren't going to want it. Um,
2: the- Connection that I then made was also podcasting as a medium, Yeah. especially considering that
0: podcasting and sound technologies were at like
2: coming at a, a big moment of change and democratization of this tech. Yeah. So how how does the podcast community avoid creating white time? Yeah. Like what,
0: what, how do we stay vigilant to not creating media? Yeah, I I think it's um it's a great question. To a certain extent, it, it's bigger than any of us as individuals, but as individuals, you know, ideally we would be good actors and be responsible and work to present the best product we can. But of course there's a, a, a naivety in that response that not everyone's going to, not everyone's going to have the same conception of what good ideas are versus bad ideas. I mean, the, the entire presentation of uh, Protestantism within that context. From the point of view of the Middle Ages in 100 or the Catholic Church, Protestantism was a bad idea that spread rapidly. From the point of view of the Protestants, that was a good idea that spread <laughs> rapidly. Um, I think that society, the role that society plays in helping to curate what gets attention. I forget, someone at the beginning of this conference said that there's like 30,000 podcasts out there now or more.
2: Yeah, 400,000.
0: I'm never going to listen to 400,000 podcasts. So the mechanisms that bring the 100 or so that I listen to regularly up to my attention, you know, that, that ends up being very important, the, the curation mechanisms. I guess I'm moving this way through the room, so yeah. you're next. So it's like, it's a really interesting thesis, but like it seems like, um, and maybe it's just because you didn't have time to really get into it, like a lot of like what I what I've learned about the witch uh, that there was like beyond just the push of like getting like people to buy your pamphlets, mm-hmm. there was people from the time, like, and there was a reason. it was like poor people accusing poor people, and poor people killing poor people. Yeah, because rich people wanted it to happen that way right like there was a there was, yeah, a there was like something behind it that, that's like, the stuff you know, that I didn't ever get right. that's the stuff I didn't have a real chance to get into so I'll say a couple minutes about that um, yeah there's a lot of theses around that and the there's the feminist interpretation and there's the communist interpretation and all that stuff and there's a lot of validity to all that uh, where it breaks down is where you get to the idea that there's a continent-spanning conspiracy of people who are like we want everybody to hate women, <laughs> um, and, and well, and it's not that people didn't hate women, and it's not that people didn't want people to hate women. Certainly, all that stuff was true. Uh, you know, the patriarchy was a thing even then. It's just that before 1429, it was also a thing, and there weren't witch hunts. And it's you know, in terms of the, the causal factors, have to be extraordinarily complex, and it's not down to one factor like misogyny or capitalism. Um, and, or the printing press. <laughs> you know, that's you know not what I'm saying here is that the printing press is the only thing. Uh, it's one of the things that made it so that a society that had lasted for about a millennium without having witch hunts then had witch hunts that killed 60,000 people and then shut it down. Uh, you had your hand up again. Oh, time. Uh, should I, one more question or? Okay. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, I was wondering, I noticed that you mentioned earlier that the Catholic Church had said, like, it's not, it's not within our doctrine to admit that witches exist, yeah. to say that witches might exist. Did that change, like, once this started happening, or are people just taking some creative
0: license in their, like, interpretation yeah. of the um, Yeah. Yeah. Short, short version, before 1429, the orthodox line was that witches were uh, charlatans. Uh, that if you were offering some sort of magical cure, you didn't have any actual power because uh, God wouldn't allow it. <laughs> it was the, the really, really short version. Um, those are the, the scriptural backup behind those arguments didn't really change, but there were different interpretations and the church was in a very uh, dark and paranoid place At that point, it was after the Black Death, it was after the the Babylonian Babylonian, uh, captivity, Uh, the Hussite Rebellion was happening, there were two crusades that were defeated against them, uh, and there had already been uh, a crusade against the Cathars. So the the papacy was in a really weird spot, and basically neither of those arguments went away, but uh, the papacy opened up room for prosecution of witches for a little while and then eventually sort of shoved it back in the corner. All right, thanks everybody.